Church, I want to underscore what Jessica Frazier said earlier, if you were here for the announcements, about Regen. Regen is a ministry, a discipleship ministry for folks with uh, hurts of all kinds, woundedness, brokenness, which is all of us. And it's just been powerfully used by God and churches around the nation. And so I'm excited that God would use it here to bring uh, Christ-likeness, healing, and transformation. So I just want to underscore that. So church, our passage today is going to hit us a bit like a bucket of cold water. And at the end of last service, the first service, you know, it's just too so somber in the room. So if you're not going to be smiling later, can you give me a smile now? That just, you know, I, I know you're friendly. Okay. All righty. Just, just hang on. Uh, buckle up maybe. The, the passage is, is hard-hitting, but, but let me say to you, everything God has for us in the Bible is good because He is good. He's good in every way. The passage, um, it's going to make you think, well, boy, I'm sure glad God doesn't deal with us that way. Um, Here's the backstory. If you are here last week, it's the end of Acts 4, and this exciting, intoxicating, really, early church. I mean, the Spirit of God is being poured out, and there's the miraculous, and the presence of God is so thick, and people are coming to Christ, and uh, there's just amazing generosity we saw last week. And then we kind of come into a very startling passage for this week. Now, let me get the flow of the passage, because our English Bible is kind of obscure uh, you guys may know that the chapter and verse divisions were not part of the originals. Uh, part of the originals, they didn't have that. Those were added uh, centuries later. So they're, they're not completely inspired. But last week in, in chapter 4, 34 and 35, we, we talked about generosity in general. And then there was a positive example about Barnabas, specifically Barnabas. Now this week in chapter 5, 1 through 11, there's going to be a negative example with Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're just reading along in your English translation, you think, okay, this is a new thought, a new thing, and it's not. What they should have done is they should have made chapter 5, verse 1, verse 38 of Acts 4, 38 through 48, and at verse 12 started a new chapter division. So it would not have obscured that this is really all part of the same passage and thought. But now you know it, and you know the backstory. Talking about generosity, positive example last week, negative example this week. Would you please stand? Let me read the passage. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. All righty. I'm going to see how many of y'all are going to smile at me at the end. <laughs> but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God." When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me 
whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Okay, I told you. Okay, here's my question. What is God saying to us? I mean, why is this passage in there, and what does God want to say, not just to the original readers of the book of Acts, but to fellow Christ believers? I mean, we have one thought, that, but thank God that, you know, He doesn't deal with us that way, or we'd need a cemetery right back out there, wouldn't we? Because none of us would still be alive. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's, that's pretty strong, pretty severe. And so what is going on? Well, let's unpack this. Now, this couple in the church, exciting, early church, God's working incredibly. People are coming to faith left and right. Life and death is a, are at issue. Their leader, their founder, Jesus, was crucified, and they've been threatened. All right, in this context, uh, God is protecting the, the spiritual life of the early church, and people were being exceedingly generous uh, Ananias and Sapphira are watching what others do to, to sell property and, and bring all the money and give it to the church to give it to needy people who are hurting. Apparently, Ananias and Sapphira are watching what's going on. They want in on the action. They want the reputation of generosity without the cost of generosity. And so they pretend like they are doing what these others are doing when there's no obligation to do anything. This is completely voluntary matter. Now, so let me just, to be more clear, let's put it in our terms. Say Ananias and Sapphira have a $100,000 piece of property and they sell it for $100,000. And then they take $70,000 of it and bring it to Peter and the apostles all excited. Hey, we've sold our property for $70,000 and we're bringing it all to God. But really, they kept back $30,000. And so there is both dishonesty, duplicity, um, and, and more so, there is pretense and posing, isn't there? They, they want to appear to have this reputation for generosity that, 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 they, that really doesn't belong to them. And, and keep in mind, all of this is voluntary. So no coercion whatsoever. They, they don't have to, to sell their property. If they do sell it, they don't have to bring the money to God. This is all extra. If they do bring some money to God, they don't have to bring it all to God. If they bring it all to God, they don't have to, you know, they, they sort of don't need to pretend they can bring part. But it is the dishonesty, the duplicity, the lying, and the pretense and pretending in the early church that is the problem. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus over and over challenges the Pharisees for probably one thing more than anything, and that is their hypocrisy. That they're self-righteous, they want to appear to be spiritual. And that's something that none of us are completely free of, but it is particularly nauseating to God. He wants honesty, real, and he wants us to be real. And he, the, the humility um, to not to be pretenders that I'm just so spiritual and I've just you know, got my act together and I, I just uh, don't have any problems. You, you know, if we're not real and honest, we can't get close to God and we can't get close to people. 
Because it's not us we're bringing, but some pretend version of us wearing a mask. I mean, that's just kind of fundamental, the kind of intimacy and transparency is behind trust and ultimately behind intimacy with God and with each other. So it matters to God. And, and, and Jesus hit those Pharisees pretty strongly about all of their pretense and posing. And, and the biggest problem with Ananias and Sapphira is actually not their dishonesty, though that's bad enough because God hates lying, but their self-righteous pretending and posing. Nobody here is free of that. Okay, when Ananias comes to Peter all excited about this thing, the Holy Spirit lets Peter know what's going on. And can you imagine Ananias' surprise when Peter responds to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the Lamb? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So lying to one another is ultimately lying to God, lying before God. And, and, and Peter's kind of saw beyond the unseen realm, I mean, beyond the physical realm to the unseen realm, that really Satan had filled their heart. Now, what the Bible teaches, what we see from time to time, we need to remind ourselves from time to time, it's not just a physical universe of things that we can see around us, but there is the unseen spiritual war raging through the cosmos, and it includes angels and demons, Satan and his demons, Michael and his angels, all that's as part of the war. And when you're lying, you're not following your father, the God of truth. You're following the father of lies because Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He's behind our lying, which, you know, ought to make all of us pause a little bit more when we want to shade the truth or actually um, tell an outright untruth. God, we are reminded, is the holy God. And Satan is out to derail you, devour you, ruin you in any and every way he can. In Hamlet, Shakespeare wrote this, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We as Christians at times need the reminder, it's not just us, there is a spiritual realm. Frederick Buechner put it this way, reality can be harsh and you shut your eyes to it only at your peril because if you do not face up to the enemy and all his dark power, then the enemy will come up from behind some dark day and destroy you while you're facing the other way. So when we sin, we we are placing an opening for Satan in our lives and our families every time. So God is protecting us. When he says to obey him and to walk with him and to live holy lives, he is doing that for our good. The battle is real. Every Sunday morning, I kneel over there and we pray together the Lord's Prayer. And there are three God-centered prayer requests, and then there are three uh, prayer requests for ourselves. The, The sixth prayer request involves the battle. And I hope when you pray it, you mean it and take it seriously. Lead us, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. So of the three requests that we pray for ourselves, daily bread, forgiveness, and protection, one-third involves the spiritual battle, the battle 
is real. And when we disobey God, we are opening ourselves up and those around us for the work of the enemy in our lives. Later, the apostle Peter. Now, Peter's the one speaking to Ananias here, but later, Peter will write in his first letter, 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. I mean, okay, a little gulp factor here. So some demon or demons are prowling around your soul looking to devour your heart and destroy your family. And every time we disobey the Lord, we're opening ourselves up for the work of Satan in our lives in some way or the other. Okay, what happens next? Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell us whether you sold the land for so much. Now, Peter is giving Sapphira an opportunity to come clean. But she doesn't. She continues the duplicity and the pretense. Verse 8, and she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Bet it did. Don't you know that everybody was thinking, wow, man, am I next? Um, God is a holy God. Don't you know that they were reminded of the holiness of God and the, and, and, the, and the severity of sin? Sin's not something to mess around with because sin will destroy your soul and bring an opening for the devil to wreak, wreak all kind of havoc in your lives. The reminder is that God, the holy God, expects us to live in holiness if we're his people and to obey him and to walk with him. Okay. What is God saying to us? It's interesting that there is a parallel passage in the Old Testament, very similar, that happened at the start of the nation of Israel. And now it's happening again with the start of the church. Back in Joshua 7, the people were just entering the land and finally they fulfilled the promises and they're going to be the people of God in that land. And God said right at the outset, when you, take, take, when you capture Jericho and people are destroyed... Don't store up their wealth. Destroy it all. Because God's going to be the one to provide for them, not their enemies. But you remember, perhaps, that one man, Achan, said, man, that stuff is just too good to pass up. And he hid a bunch, buried in his tent, and God withdrew his favor and hand. And then everybody was wondering, you know, what's going on? Who's sinned? Who's doing this? And, and God had them, you know, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, and it came out to be, it was Achan. And Achan had done much the same thing, dishonesty, greed, pretense, and it was exposed, and God took his life and his family's life. Both at the start of the nation and at the start of the church, God is underscoring the holiness of God to protect his people from sin. Now, 
God doesn't deal with us that severely. Thank God. But do you think God is any less a holy God? Do you think that God is not any less zealous for you, you and me to obey the Lord and not live in sin and open our lives and our families up to the work of Satan? God is a holy God, and He expects us to obey Him, and it is our good to obey Him. Sometimes, because God does not pay at the end of every day, we, we might think, okay, I can get away with this sin. The church in America lives about like the, everybody else in America. Sexual sin is about the same inside and outside the church. The divorce rate is about the same inside and outside the church. And just about every factor, the church looks just like the world. And God is the holy God, and He's called us to live lives of holiness. And it is for our good and for God's glory that we obey the Lord and please Him. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. If we think that we could sin and get away with it, we are sadly mistaken. There, sin always hurts us. Sin always hurts us. Now, here's the, the thing, that God is not only the holy, holy, holy God, but he is a God who is crazy in love with each one of us. And so he did the unthinkable. He did this. He said, okay, all of us, we deserve eternity separate from God. Uh, and we are separate from God, but God did this. He, he loved us so much that he, he did what we could not do. He paid for our sin to give us life. He, he sent his own son, God the Son, the eternal Son of God, to this earth. He was crucified on the cross, and that's the whole reason that he came. And when he was crucified on the cross, God took all of your sin, all of your sin, every thought, word, deed. He placed it upon Jesus, and Jesus died for it paid for it. And God says, if you will have my son, if you will receive this gift, you can have forgiveness forever and ever. Now, when we sin day by day, we're going to have consequences of that. Thank God the eternal sin has been paid for. But that ought to motivate us to want to please him in every way. And besides the fact that every time we sin, we're going to hurt ourselves and others around us in one way or the other. Here's the point of this passage. God is a holy God, and He expects us to live holy lives, and we are not doing it. The church in America is not doing it, and it would be naive to think that the church at Wood's Edge is. I know many of you are all in, surrendered to Christ, yea, God. But the church this large, there are plenty of folks out here who are treating God casually, disdaining the command of God. And the Bible says God is a holy God. He's a, he's a consuming fire. He expects us to obey Him. So, as a challenge for us this morning, is there any area of my life that is in rebellion against God? Now, none of us are sin-free, but, but are we surrendered to the Lord that we obey what He says? I hope so. I hope there should be no overt sin in our life. I mean, Nobody's going to be completely free of pride or selfishness till you get to heaven. But there should be no uh, rebellion in our lives. And, and every area should be surrendered. And, and this passage is calling us to holiness, to holiness, because God's a holy God. In the Chronicles of Narnia, 
the first book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a fascinating conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the two girls, Susan and Lucy. It's great. Is, is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Bert Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's God. He's the king. He, he's, he's good, but he is not safe. He is a consuming fire, and he is the judge of all the earth. And, you, and, and we cannot, we dare not trifle with him. God is not deceived. A man reaps what he sows. All right. What's God saying to us this morning? He is saying to us to obey the Lord, to live a holy life. That if there's sin in our lives, bring it to God. Bring it to the cross. His blood, the blood of Jesus, is bigger than your sin. And he will cleanse it. And then go and sin no more, like Jesus said to the woman in Romans and John 8. Okay, this week I'm working on my passage, and I thought, okay, that's it. That's the message. Finished with the C.S. Lewis story. Makes a good point about who God is. He's good, but he's not safe, and, and we're done. But then the, the Lord said, no, you're not quite done. Okay, so let me add in uh, and tell you about what's been going on in my heart the last month. About Christmas time, about four weeks ago, I began to be um, stirred up that the, the level of holiness at Wood's Edge had to rise. Now, I'm not thinking ahead about Ananias and Sapphira, but God is stirring in my heart that we dare not, as a people, uh, kind of blend in with American Christianity, casual, convenient, comfortable Christianity, uh, you know, giving God a little lip service on a Sunday morning, but living like we want to. I, I began to be stirred up more and more that that could not be. And what I felt like God put on my heart was that we as pastors, we as the staff especially, needed to set the bar. I mean, if we're, we're going to be kind of the pastors of the church, we need to set the bar. So that, that's going on in my heart. During this time, I'm reading a biography by C.T. Studd. And uh, C.T. Studd lived in the eight, late 1800s, early 1900s, British missionary. Just leave C.T. up there for a little bit, if you don't mind. Okay. He, his father was a wealthy uh, man who, uh, think of the Downton Abbey mansion. Okay, that's what he grew up in, that kind of place. And his dad once got held up overnight in Dublin, Ireland, and he went to hear Dwight Moody preach the gospel, and he gets saved. So he is an extremely wealthy man, gets saved, and his four kids, four boys get saved, and they come to Christ. Okay, one of the boys is C.T. Studd. He goes to Cambridge, 
And uh, he, he is also a national sports celebrity. He's a cricket player. Cricket's big in England. And he's famous throughout the nation. And when he's a senior at Cambridge, he feels called to not be a wealthy businessman in England, but to go to China as a missionary. And so he and six others, they were called the Cambridge Seven, uh, go to China as missionaries, and they cut their hair like uh, Hudson Taylor had the missionaries do, and they had Chinese dress and the whole thing. He goes there, and he's living there several years when he marries another woman, missionary there, and they're married. Another year or so goes by, and his father dies back in England. And when his father dies, um, even though his mother's still alive, each of the four sons get a very large inheritance, very large inheritance. So he's kind of got a fortune, he's over in China, and he feels called by God to give it all away, every, every bit of it. And, and so that's what he does. He gives it to George Mueller, he gives it to uh, um, Hudson Taylor, and two others. And so he's destitute over in China. He and his wife both felt no call by God to do that. And they live as missionaries for, I forget, 15, 20 years in China. And, uh, and then they go to India for another six years, uh, working in a school in southern India, serving the Lord. And then at about age 50 or so, they, they return to England. Not sure what the future holds to them, but they're not there for too long, less than a year when he feels clearly called by God to go to Africa. The problem is he's in failing health, and his wife is an invalid. She cannot travel. And so this is what they decide to do, is she's going to run the mission agency from England. He's going to go to the heart of Africa, modern-day Congo, and, and serve God. And because of his health issues and her health issues, everybody that he knew was trying to dissuade him. This is not God's calling. Look, you're still a famous person in England. God can use you here in all kinds of ways. But no, this is what they felt God wanted them to do, so he does it. And the last 20 years of their life, they're largely separated. He's in the heart of Africa. She's on her, you know, in England, and they're serving the Lord because they're convinced this is what God has for them. Now, all of that is just more the, uh, the, the tangentials. Here's what is it. When you read through the book, I get this serious sense that, man, they are fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. I mean, they're not playing games. They are all in to obey the Lord, whatever it involves. And I was, couldn't help thinking of the contrast between the modern church and America. And I'm just stirred about how God wants us to live holy lives, you and me. About that time, two weeks ago, I find out, we find out that there's a, two people on our staff. Remember, I want our pastors to set the bar. I, I feel called by God who are two pastors on our staff, young folks who are involved in an emotional affair. And that comes to light. To their credit, they come forward to confess. And to their credit, there have been brokenness and repentance. But God has been stirring in my heart for holiness, especially for our pastors. And this happens. And then another week, I come to this passage. And how God wants us to live holy lives. That he's serious about the sin that would destroy you. And I don't know what the Spirit of God is saying to you this morning. But I hope it is. Oh God, I want to please you. I want to be surrendered to you. The, the point of this call this morning to holiness is not that you've got to measure up to some legalistic standard that's not the point you can never measure up the point is this 
you humble yourself and surrender and say, God, you have all of me. You can have that sin, and you can have this one. You can have that relationship, and you can have this. I surrender it to you. You know, this kind of life doesn't happen apart from you meeting with God, along with God in the secret place every day. Every godly person through history, through the scriptures, that's what they did. They got along with God every day to meet with God. And, and, and that is the only thing, as we fall in love with Jesus, meeting with him, where we have a chance to walk with God. Some years back, a study was done about 250 pastors who had fallen into sexual sin over the previous two years. Every case, they had stopped meeting with God every day. It stopped their time with the Lord. And that's just disaster. And if you think that you're invulnerable from the worst of sins, you're wrong because nobody here is invulnerable. We all need to prize the holiness of God and seek the Lord, seek the face of God. Someone put it this way, talking about zeal for God. Zeal is a burning desire to please God, to do His will, to advance His glory in the world in every possible way. A zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. Church, God is looking for men and women who will have a burning zeal for one thing, to please him. He is looking for men and women. The easy way is to give God a little tip occasionally and a little dose of uh, lip service on Sunday mornings and live just like anybody else. But those who get the love of God and what He's done for us on the cross and the holiness of God, we have no other choice than to go all in for Jesus Christ. I'm going that way, and I hope you'll go with me. And if the Spirit of God is saying anything to you this morning about any sin in your life, then He is so good. By all means, obey Him. If you're, you're sensing something right now going on in your heart, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, then give it to Him. Receive His grace and obey the Lord. Would you bow your head, please? Let's respond to God, not to the preacher, but to God. Lord, is there anything I need to give to you? Lord God, you love these people. I love these people, Lord God. And you are protecting us from self-destruction. Lord, help us to know that you're gentle and gracious and your, your grace is bigger than our sin. Lord, I pray for holiness, for zeal for you.
throughout Woods Edge for your glory. For your glory. Lord, I pray all over this room people be laying down sin and saying, you got it, Lord. You got it. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Friend, if you're here in the room, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, do it right now. Just breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. And he will.